Eleven and a half years ago, I stepped into a pulpit in a different place, a different pulpit, different ministry. Preach a message that I knew would probably cost me my job. The leaders of the church had made it abundantly clear to me that if I were to preach that message, I would be fired. Or if you know me, I'm not one to be persuaded much in the area of philosophy of preaching. I'm pretty settled in my ways. And they knew I was heading for this particular chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is our passage for this morning. They knew I was headed there and they knew what it contained. And they tried to head what they thought was the eventual, uh, I guess, catastrophe off at the past. They tried to tell me that I needed to bypass the rest of the chapter, maybe some of chapter 7, and move on to something else. Because this chapter deals with sexual sin. And they told me it's too offensive to people. People will leave. There are people in the congregation who've done some of these things, and they'll feel bad. And so, so you can't talk about that from the pulpit. Well, I'll say to you the same thing I said to them back then. If they don't hear it here, where are they going to hear it? Where are they going to hear God's message about sexuality? Where are they going to hear God's message about purity? They're not going to hear it from their school. They're not going to hear it from their theater. They're not going to hear it from their TV screen. They're not going to hear it from their radio or their podcast. They're not going to see it necessarily on their computer screen. They're not going to hear it from their friends. Where are they going to hear it? If they don't hear God's message about sexuality, where and who is going to tell them? It should be no need to validate and recognize that we're in a sex-saturated culture. A $13 billion a year uh, porn industry surrounds us all the time. Covenant Eyes website reports that one in five searches on a mobile device is for pornographic material. 70% of men, 32% of women view porn multiple times every month. The staggering growth rate is really among women who now at a rate of 50% say it's acceptable to view pornography. People are getting the message, but they're not getting it necessarily from God's word. They're getting a message of sexuality, but it isn't the truth. It's not the message of the Bible. And that's not even to speak of the exaltation of infidelity and immorality that they see regularly glorified in all of their programs that they turn to for their entertainment, not to mention a culture that is increasingly approving of sex outside of marriage. 48% of people this year will, will, will cohabitate with one another rather than be married. If people don't hear the message of the scripture concerning sexuality, where are they going to hear it? You may say, well, they need to hear it at home. They need to hear it from their parents. That's something that ought to be discussed in private. Well, consider this. 50% of men and 20% of women who regularly attend church call themselves addicts to pornography. The, the, The divorce rate among evangelical professing Christians is virtually the same as that which is outside the church. And among those who will divorce Virtually all of them will cite dissatisfaction in their marital intimacy as one of the factors of the breakdown in their marriage. 
71% of pornographic activity that takes place by, by teens will not be known by their parents. So again, if they don't hear the message of the purity and God's view of sexuality from the church, where are they going to hear it? We can't sit back and just assume that uh, a, a culture that's saturated by sex isn't going to have an impact on people. We can't just sit back and, and hope and dream that somehow the church is going to walk through unscathed. Statistics certainly don't prove that out. In fact, they tell us the exact opposite, that culture is encroaching on the church at a breathtaking pace and that people are being drawn in and sucked in and being caused to stumble over and over again in this issue. No, it's the church's mandate, it's the church's obligation to speak to all the issues about which Scripture speaks, and sexuality is by no means an obscure subject on the pages of Scripture. You'll find throughout the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, Israel's sin in relationship to God continually compared analogously to sexual sin, sometimes in very, very graphic language. The Bible begins with a story of marriage and its intimacy and immediately you're plunged into a myriad of examples before you even get out of the first book regarding sexual sin. And certainly when you come to the New Testament, the emphasis doesn't go away. If anything, it's more pronounced maybe in a more individualistic way, but, but largely because the society into which all the letters of the New Testament were written was a decadent society, a corrupt society. Society with a poisoned view of sexuality and a deficient view of marriage. Marriage in the Roman world was universally held in low, low esteem. There was virtually no ideal of romantic love remaining. It had become a utilitarian institution. It was looked upon almost exclusively as a means of procreation, and that was it. And so consequently, you had two strains of thought that rose very prominently in Greek literature and Greek writing. One of them was the Stoic approach, which recognized the superficiality and the lack of desirability in marriages of the day and resigned itself to a sort of asceticism, saying that, therefore, based on the lack of fulfillment that we find in marriage, we should conclude that that which is sensual is that which is evil. And so we will abstain as much as possible from all sexual activity, even within marriage. On the other hand, you had those who looked at marriage, certainly with the values of procreation, but while it was acceptable to bear children by your wife, you would find your real sexual gratification by means of prostitutes, slaves, and other people outside of your marriage, and this was acceptable. In fact, in Corinth itself, the book to which uh, Paul is writing, in that city in particular whose crowning jewel was a temple to a goddess of love named Aphrodite, there were, we're told, over 1,000 prostitutes who had been donated or given to this temple as sex slaves by wealthy patrons through the years. And each night they would descend down from their Acropolis into the city to ply their trade. Strabo, a Greek writer, reported that this was one of the things which was at the very heart of the reputation of the city. In other cities in the ancient Greek world, public brothels were established, prices regulated by governing authorities, and under the finance of the government, these brothels employed both men and women who would stand around unclothed all day seeking to lure people in to their business. 
And so, we find that Paul writes to these people in the midst of their own sex-saturated culture. And he has this primary exhortation to them in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. In other words, not only is it desirable, it's possible. And it's mandated that you flee from it. This is the primary imperative in the whole section. This is the primary message of the passage. And Paul uses the word porneia here, which if you remember last week we mentioned is the broadest possible term for sexual sin that you'll find in the scripture. It's used in reference to adultery and fornication and homosexuality. And outside the scripture, it's used for other things such as pedophilia and bestiality and all sorts of sexual sin. And so as you hear Paul's exhortation here, you need to hear it in its broadest sense. You need to hear that this is an exhortation to flee sexual immorality, all forms of sexual immorality, fornication, pornography, fantasy fiction, not to mention adultery and homosexuality and any other sin that would be categorized outside of God's design for sexuality. Paul basically delivers that exhortation in the context of a whole section here where he is really speaking to the church and to us about God's design for sexuality. It begins in verse 12 of this chapter, or really going back to verse 9, you remember when we looked at last week, extends all the way through the end of the chapter and bleeds over, as we'll see, into chapter 7, where Paul addresses the issue of sexuality within marriage. And all of this written as a defense of God's design for sexuality. It is that design for your sexuality, for your body, for your soul that form the backdrop of Paul's urgent appeal in verse 18. I want us to take some time to look at this passage this morning here in 1 Corinthians 6. And then, of course, next week coming back and looking at the principles that are given to us for marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. But here in this sixth chapter, we're going to take note of five powerful reasons for running from sexual immorality that Paul lays out for us here. Five powerful reasons for running from sexual sin. Let's begin simply by reading this passage beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved By anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, two will become one flesh. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you are bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. Five powerful reasons for running from sin that Paul gives to us here. The first one in verses 12 through 13. He gives us the reason of the power of sexual sin. And really at the core of the Corinthians problem was that they misunderstood They misunderstood the power of sin in general, and they misunderstood the power of sexual sin in particular. Sin, of course, enslaves. It is a powerful thing. But of all sins, sexual sin seems to be particularly gripping. It's generally agreed when you come to verse 12 that what we have here is Paul quoting one of the slogans of the Corinthians themselves, as we've already seen. He does numerous times throughout this book and probably what he's doing here. And you'll see the break between their words and Paul's words by the conjunctions that are there. They say, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but Paul says not all things are helpful. They say all things are lawful for me, but Paul says I will not be dominated by anything. Some people have suggested that you could you could render that last phrase, all things are in my power, but I will not put myself in the power of anything. But that's really what he's saying. That's really the sad irony of the situation here. Some of these believers apparently were boasting about their personal autonomy and their personal freedom and their personal liberties. And they actually went around believing that they were autonomous and believing that they were free. But at the heart of their boasting was the telling sign of their slavery, which was their personal resistance to give up what was clearly a destructive pattern in their life. And they could mask it behind some theological argument about how they're free in regard to the law. And they could mask it behind some theological argument about how they no longer stand under the law of Moses. How they've been set free or whatever it might be. But their individual claim of liberty and their individual claim of freedom was just a justification for a pattern which Paul says on one hand was dominating them and on the other hand was destroying them. It's not helpful, that is to say it's hurtful. And it's not freeing, it is enslaving. Paul quotes their motto instead of trying to correct it with some list of do's and don'ts. Yeah, you're not under the law, but let me give you some laws. Now he gives them a more compelling reason to avoid sexual sin because it will absolutely take control of you. It's really the better way to deal with sin, the issue of purity and sexual sin, because at the heart of the matter, it's an issue of the heart. It's a matter of the heart more than anything else. And rules and barriers and regulations will never, ever be able to contain a heart that is enslaved to sexual sin. So Paul begins by telling these people that what they're engaged is in is first of all destructive and second of all dominating. And few things, few things are as dominating as sexual sin. It is regularly classified today as an addiction. So that a candidate for the mayor of New York can stand up and say, look, I have this problem and I show pictures of myself to women on the internet, but it's an addiction. And everyone says, oh, okay. 
That's the lens through which people see. That's the worldview through which they understand because they all have experience. They all have firsthand knowledge with the power of sexual sin. They know it can be dominating. The world understands this. What a shame that the church doesn't. What a shame that the church would go around and in the name of boasting about freedom would justify some dabbling together in this kind of activity without realizing the power of this sin. And yet, if you're one who tries to speak up about the dangers and the damage of sexual sin, you will almost immediately be labeled as malicious, callous, hurtful, and oppressive. Especially if you include in your message any negative comment about homosexuality. But it's all the same. It's all the same. It is destructive and it's dominating. And this is what Paul's telling him. Look, the real damage isn't from me. And I'm not going to give you some other law. And the real damage isn't from people around you. The real damage is from the sin that you are so obsessed with. It isn't helpful to you. In fact, it's harmful. It isn't freeing. In fact, it is suffocating. It is controlling. This is the reason you should flee from whatever form of sexual sin you are in. Because it has lied to you. Whatever initial gratification it may have promised soon fades. And what is left is nothing but the weight of your shame, the fear of rejection, and the exhaustion of the lies. This is spelled out most clearly in Proverbs chapter 5. You can look with me there for a moment. Proverbs 5 is a chapter written to a son. It's written to a pre-adolescent. The writer is writing to his son and warning him of the allurements and the deceptions of sexual sin. Telling him in verse 1 to be attentive to wisdom, incline his ear to understanding that, it, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Now, don't get caught up by the gender there. This is written to a son, so he's writing about a woman. You could just as well write about the lips of an adulterous man. But the point is that they promise so much. They drip with honey. They come across as smooth. But their end he says, is extremely painful. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of shield. And what he's saying is what everyone else knows, what we all recognize, what we all have experienced. That sexual sin seems nice. It seems enjoyable. It seems good. It promises satisfaction. It promises pleasure. But in the end, it is deceitful. In the end, it never delivers on what it promises. In the end, it offers great satisfaction, but it gives disappointment. It claims to be real living, but it's a way to death. That's what he's saying. 
Involvement with adultery and fornication and pornography or whatever it might be leads to a loss of honor, leads to a loss of health, leads to a loss of mental stability, leads to a loss ultimately of security, possessions, and so, so much more. In fact, look down at verse 9. He says in verse 8, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin. He says, in the midst of the congregation. Here you are at the end when you have been duped by all the lies, when you have been absolutely destroyed by all the deception, and you are thinking, what a fool. What a fool. This is what Paul's telling them. Yeah, things are lawful, sure. But are they helpful? Yeah, things are lawful. But are they going to are they going to control you? Are they going to dominate you? And every evidence, whether it's in the Bible or in society, says yes. It will absolutely grip you. It will grip you, it will control you, it will suffocate you in your emotional life in your relational life, and in your spiritual life. And as believers, we cannot give ourselves over to that. Well, that's not Paul's only reason for running away from sexual sin. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he speaks of another one, which is the purpose of our bodies. Again, quoting from the opponents of sexual, proponents of sexual freedom, He says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. This is their, this is the other angle of their argument. One of them is theological. This one is biological. I mean, this is just natural. I mean, this is just the way that we are, right? This is the way that we've been made. It's just like eating. We have an appetite. We run out and get a a bite to eat. What's, What's the difference? It's biological, Not an unfamiliar of an argument, is it? You hear those same kind of things today. It's just the way I'm made. Sort of the genes that I have. It's just, it's just, it's just natural to me. I don't feel any problem with it. It's completely who I am. Hugh Hefner said, "Sex is a normal function of the body. It's the desire that man shares with animals, just like sleeping and eating. Therefore, it is not wrong to satisfy their normal desires." What's the big deal? What's the big deal? What are you? Who are you coming along telling me this is wrong? I mean, this is as natural to me as it is breathing. It might be wrong for you, but it's fine for me. I mean, we're just two adults here and, and we're participating in something that seems right to us. Who are you to say it's wrong? This is the way that we're made. This is what feels right to us. All this is very similar to the reasoning of these 
sexual proponents in Corinth. There's no moral violation in gratifying your appetite. And so our bodies have been created with a certain appetite for sex. And so it must be God's will that we fulfill it. And their conclusion was that God was not going to judge them for that. Just like eating a bite of food, they said you eat the food, the food's eliminated. In fact, the stomach's eliminated. I don't want to get into too much detail here, but apparently there was this idea that in the afterlife, you're going to have just some sort of outer body experience. And that's what it was really all going to be about. These guys, at the very least, minimize the aspect of having a physically resurrected body. Or at the worst, they completely denied that in the afterlife, you and I would have any kind of resurrected body. And so this was their proof that God's going to do away with it anyway. He's not really that concerned about what we do in our body. Well, Paul responds with this amazing statement. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is really, this is really profound. Paul affirms that not only is God concerned about your body and what you do to and with your body, but that he specifically has designs for it both now and for eternity. And that that should weigh on you. I mean, you ever considered the fact that you and I will be given forever and ever a physical body in which we carry out our existence? The kingdom and eternity are not going to be you and I floating around on clouds, playing some sort of ethereal music on harps. It will be forever an embodiment for us. That's what the physical resurrection is all about. God has designed the body and he has predestined it for eternal purposes, for glorious purposes. And one of those purposes, Paul says, is not sexual immorality. Now, Paul says, not only is God for you and, and your body in this life, but in verse 14, God will raise the, God raised the Lord and he will raise us up also by, by his power. In other words, God has designed a plan for how you and I can use this body to the fullest extent for our blessing and for his good. And it's a plan that will be demonstrated not only in the kingdom, but it will be demonstrated or it ought to be demonstrated throughout all eternity. It will be demonstrated throughout all eternity, ought to be demonstrated in this life. So far from dismissing what we do with our bodies, he's saying God's going to raise up our bodies. It's not as if God's unconcerned about your body. Maybe that God's only worried about what's taking place in your heart and your mind. It's not as if God's unconcerned about your body. In fact, he's eternally concerned about your body. And he has eternal designs for exactly what you do with it, he says. And one of those designs is not for sexual immorality. He created in the garden a body for a man and a woman, created it according to his purpose and his design, and then he will redeem and resurrect our bodies to fulfill that design for all eternity. And so God is eternally interested in how you employ your body. 
And so while you cannot fully experience the kind of body that awaits us then, or even the kind of environment that you will live in, you can bring and you ought to be bringing a little bit of that glory of the kingdom here on earth by the way that you employ and dedicate your physical body to the Lord, he says. Now, the flip side of this is not only is our body for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. That's what he says. The Lord is for the body. God is, to say the least, a proponent of your body. He designed your body. He created your body. He originally created it male and female, and he declared that it was very good. Not only did did he do that, but he has eternal designs for it. He designed your body so he, of all people, knows what is best for your body. What he prescribes for it, he prescribes... Because it is the one pathway that will bring the greatest joy, the greatest health, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest stability. God, in other words, God is not about denial of your pleasures. God is about design for them. You understand that? See, if you think about sexual sin and you think it's all about denial, then you don't understand that God is for your body. If you think that God is all about getting uh, some, uh, some angle against you or denying you something, then you have not understood the message of Scripture. God is for you. This is very similar language to when Jesus was making a contrast between the Sabbath. Man was not for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. This isn't a contrast. This is a double affirmative. Your body is for God and God is for your body. God is... God has, God has a plan, God has a design, God has a roadmap, and if you follow that roadmap, what you're going to find is you're not going to have any greater advocate for your happiness and your peace and your health and your prosperity than God. And you know what happens when you engage in sexual sin? What you're saying is, God, you don't know what's best for my body. Or worse, when you listen to that person who's trying to lure you in, or when you look at that image on some screen and you let them tell you what's best for your body, then you're letting them tell you instead of God tell you what's best for your body. And that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. God is not against you. He's for you. God is not against sex. He's for it. And He has designed it And he has mandated it in such a way that will bring you the greatest possible blessing, the greatest possible fulfillment. Your part then is to understand that and not to listen to all the lies of people that tell you they know better than God. It's to be enjoyed within the parameters of God's design. It's to be enjoyed within the parameters of lifelong commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. And within that marriage, God has designed sexuality a certain way as we'll see next week for the fulfillment of everyone involved so when you engage in sexual sin you're thumbing your nose at god's design and you're thinking that god is against you he's not you're telling god you know better than he does you don't and you will never find anything that 
sexual activity is supposed to deliver. You're looking for it outside of his design. Sort of takes us to the third reason to run from sexual sin in verses 15 through 17, which is the permanence of sexual unions. The permanence of sexual unions. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, this is a mystery. I have to confess. I have to tell you, I can't fully explain everything in the verse. The good news is no one else can either. I've read a lot of people this week. Not a lot of answers out there. But one thing is obvious. There is something more taking place in the sexual act than just two bodies coming together. There's something more taking place in the sexual act than just some physical activity. There is something mystical, we might say, emotional, relational, even spiritual. And this is a spiritual union that is there, Paul says, in every sexual act. You say, really? I mean, I know Genesis 2.24, Paul quotes it here. I know that was said about marriage, and I know that that's something that we're supposed to sort of you know, work on and kind of achieve and all that. No, Paul says that that verse applies to a sexual act even with someone that you have no intention of ever having a long-term relationship with, even with a prostitute, a one-night stand. You see, the world would tell you today that sex is casual. The world would tell you today it's just passing. They would tell, tell you today it's just an act, you know, it's just a one-time momentary thing. In fact, that is essentially what the people in Corinth were saying. And Paul, for him to endorse that would be to play right into their hands, but he says exactly the opposite. It is not a momentary thing. It is not a passing thing. Even when it's with a prostitute, someone that you have no intention of ever seeing again, he says, even in that situation, you are joining yourself together in a union with them. Do you understand that? And it's unbreakable. So, he gives them this warning. Based on the quotation from Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. He says, you, your body, don't you understand, it's a member of Christ. And you can take that member and make it a member of another person. Even with a one-time act. You see, when you engage in a sexual act, God has so designed that act. That it has a unique intimacy. That's, that word that we use sometimes, I think we've dumbed it down to just maybe some description about a location. 
a circumstance. We, we kind of equate it maybe with privacy. But that's really not what it is. There's something that goes on between a man and a woman that goes beyond just two bodies coming together. God has designed it that there's something that takes place emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Sex is intimate on a level like no other act. And we know that not only because of the way that God describes it in Genesis 2.24. Not only that, but you have other descriptions in the Bible that refer to this intimacy. For example, Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. The Bible speaks about this act in terms of familiarity, in terms of intimacy. And I've mentioned this before, that there's no other person on the face of this earth that you are to be one flesh with except for your spouse. No matter how close you are to him, no matter how deep your love is for him, even for your own children or your own parents, never will you be referred to as one flesh together with them. Matthew 125, Joseph, on the other hand, did not know his wife, even though they were married until until she gave birth to Jesus. Obviously, is isn't a reference to casual knowledge. That's a reference to some intimate knowledge. Not only that, but you see the sort of contrast. Unfortunately, when someone participates in a sexual act, Without the attendant commitment on an emotional, relational, even a spiritual level. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles over to Second Samuel chapter 13. Second Samuel 13. Reread this story. In verse 1 of 2 Samuel 13, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, she's not his full sister. She's his half-sister. They both share the same father, but they're by different mothers and they're living in the house here. And Amnon becomes, for lack of a better word, he's infatuated with her. I mean, he starts to think about her and, and uh, dream about her. He, gets, he becomes ill. And he's just so taken up with this idea. He thinks he's in love with her. And he can't get around it. He just thinks about her all the time. And you come down to verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. He's saying, look, she's saying, look, the king will endorse a marriage. This was acceptable at that point. Just let's do this the right way. 
But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And then look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. How do you explain that? You understand that this wasn't a hatred that grew over a series of days or weeks or months. It's not that he suddenly became disappointed with the way that she was responding to all of his advances or whatever. He went from what in his mind was a passionate love to a passionate hatred in a split second. How do you explain that? I'll tell you how to explain that. Because whenever you try to engage in a sexual union apart from God's plan, and it is not attended with the kind of commitment relationally and emotionally and spiritually that's supposed to be there, what you find is that a sexual union is utterly disappointing. It's disappointing. And that's what Amnon found, that without this commitment that he really should have had, that Tamar wanted to have, the spiritual commitment, what he thought was so wonderful was suddenly in a moment so terribly, terribly disappointing. Obviously hurtful to Tamar, but even hurtful to him. It's hurtful to him. When you try to take this gift of God, but without the commitment of marriage, and you try to engage in it without the kind of long-term commitments that this kind of activity demands in your heart and life, it will do things inside of you that you can't fully understand. It will twist your heart, it will twist your emotions, it will twist your mind, and it will twist your spiritual life. And if you think that you can just casually go out and participate in this activity and you can finish up and you can be unscathed, then you do not understand the way that this works. So we know from the description of the Bible that sex is intimate. In fact, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want you to notice a second indication from Paul about this intimacy because he immediately there in chapter 6 He talks about the union that you have with a prostitute after a one-time engagement. Do you not know, he says in verse 16, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. And then notice, he immediately compares it to what? In verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He immediately compares it to the spiritual union that you have with Christ. There's a parallel between the spiritual union you have with Christ and the kind of union that's established between two people in a sexual act. People want to believe that sex is harmless, it's recreational, it's casual. It's no different than going out and watching a movie. Sort of participate and you leave and 
Maybe I have a few memories, but that's it. Paul says that's not the case. I don't care if it's a prostitute. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's I don't care if you have absolutely no intention, no long-term love, no long-term commitment, no thought whatsoever of doing anything. I don't care what your attitude is. When you enter into this, it affects you. There's something permanent, something sustaining. Or at least there is supposed to be. And when you try to participate in some sexual union with someone without wanting to commit to them relationally or even spiritually, something is missing. And the sexual union will never be what it's designed to be until you recognize this, until you follow it through with a representative commitment, obviously, as God designed with a marriage. This is all behind what Paul's saying here. This isn't casual. This isn't passing. You join yourself to another person. You're one flesh with them. It's not just the moment. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. There's a fourth reason that Paul gives them in verse 18. He wants them to understand in light of all this that there are pitfalls, unique pitfalls regarding sexual sin. Flee sexual immorality, he says. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. People will read that. Well, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, aren't there other sins that are inside your body? I mean, gluttony and drunkenness and suicide. What does that mean? What it means is that there's something unique about sexual sin. It's not as the the only sin that damages your body, the only sin that's committed within your body. That's not what he's talking about. But there's something unique in the damage that's done by sexual sin. I mean, it has its pitfalls. There's, of course, the lying and the stealing and the cheating, and in some cases, even the killing that comes out of it. There's hatred, there is bitterness, there is slander, there is gossip, there is unforgiveness. There are are certainly plenty of consequences to talk about, but I think even beyond that, Paul's talking about something else. Something that this kind of sin does to your heart and your mind. As we saw. And it's mystical. And you can't fully explain it. But you need to understand it. For the Bible's advice. Stay as far away. As possible. Stay as far away. From the places. And the persons. Who are likely to draw you in. To this sin. Because of his dangers. Proverbs 5 8. Keep your way far. From her. And do not even go near. The door of her house. Don't just assume. That you can casually. Brush across. The place where this sin is found. And not be lured in. He says. Don't even go near. Joseph understood this. When he was presented with a situation of sexual sin, a temptation with Potiphar's wife, he knew this. He knew it wasn't time for argument or explanation or debate. He knew that passion is not rational. It is not sensational. And so what did he do? He fled. He ran out the door. 
which is not a bad strategy. You hear me? Separate yourself as far away as possible, he says, from the people and places that would cause you to sin. It's dangerous, and it ought to be fled. Because it will grip your soul, it will destroy your life, and you will not be unscathed, no matter how passing you think it might be. And then finally, one more quickly, just to mention. Paul says you need to run from sexual sin because of the possession of your body by Christ. Possession of your body. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is Paul's final appeal to them in this regard to sexual immorality outside of marriage. And he brings up this image of the slave market, which would have been very common for them that day, in those days. And he talks to them about the purchase of them. And he's saying, you've been bought, you've been purchased. But you weren't purchased for freedom, you understand that? You were certainly freed from sin, but you weren't purchased for autonomy. You were, in fact, purchased from slavery to sin so that God could make you a slave to himself. He bought you. He purchased you. He paid the price for you. And you're not your own. And you could never be your own. Say, why not? Because you can't afford the price. Can't afford the price. The price was nothing less than an innocent, spotless, victimized creator of the universe. He gave that price to purchase you. He gave that price to take you from the hopelessness and helplessness of your enslavement to sin and to purchase you and make you a slave for himself. And so Paul says, don't you realize that you're a temple now? Let me ask you, what's the purpose of a temple? What's a temple for? I'll tell you what a temple's for. Temple's for worship. What they use temples for. Temple's for worship. And don't you realize that you are a vehicle for worship? Your body, your life, everything about you now has been purchased and has been given a brand new meaning, a new design. In fact, the original design, the design that God knew would be most gratifying to you, most fulfilling to you, and obviously most pleasing to him. You've been bought with a price, Paul says. Glorify God. Glorify God in all your body. Everything you do to it, everything you do with it, understand has been given to you for His purposes.
Let's stand together to be dismissed. I want to say to you. I'm aware. That there are many in this room who have not been unscathed. By sexual sin. Some of you may still to this day grapple with some of the consequences of decisions that you made in the past. Everything that Paul has to say here is a warning for people regarding what is coming in the future, but it's not a denial of the healing power of the gospel and the cleansing work of Christ. That you may have engaged in some of these things that did great harm to you, to your heart, to your mind, and maybe even to your marriage. But it's not beyond the scope of God's power to heal what's broken. It's not beyond the scope of God's power to forgive whatever's been done. And there are some of you who even now are dabbling. And you're thinking. You're contemplating. Maybe somebody has a better design than God. God's saying it's not true. You've been living perhaps that way for a while. You ought to be tasting the disappointment and you are here today because God is calling you back to faithfulness, back to His design. There's some of you here today who've never tasted God's design because you don't know Christ. We want to encourage you that no matter what the sin is, that it's controlling and dominating you until you come to the Savior. He will free you from the power of sin. And he will give you the most blessed enslavement that you could ever imagine. A slavery to him. And he is one who is dedicated to nothing but your good. What a joyous place it is to be with the Savior. We want to encourage you to do that today. Lay aside the disappointment. Lay aside the destruction. Lay aside all of the grief of your sin. And come to Christ. Father, we're grateful. Thankful today that. You give us such forgiveness. That the broken and contrite heart is always met. By your super abundant grace and loving kindness. Father we need that. We are in a culture that is constantly luring us away. Constantly reaching out to grab hold of our hearts, our lives, our bodies. Lord I pray that you would keep us free from its grip and its power. And always blessed within the design that you have for our sexuality. Make us, Lord, what you've designed us to be and what you will have us to be forever. Temples dedicated to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.